And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with Hugo Nebula, World Fantasy and Theodore Sturgeon Award-winning author and translator Ken Liu on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're off once again. Did you enjoy that, Ken? I did, I did. I do want to point out that I was a Theodore Sturgeon nominee, but I was not a winner. Oh, you Just... should have had... They should have given it to you. <laughs> but am I correct? Am I correct? Am I correct that the Paper Menagerie is the only story of any kind to win Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy? Uh, I believe that's correct, although I didn't do the research myself, um, so I, I'm told that's true. I, I didn't check it out either, but it, it says a lot about genre crossover, I think, because normally World Fantasy almost just excludes anything that we would be considered for a Nebula. Um, so somehow getting both of those is very impressive and a good sign, I think, for our the, the, the health of our genre mixing. I certainly agree. Um, I, like, I like genre mixing, so that is good news to me. <laughs> but, but, but that's not the real reason you're here tonight, although your stories are wonderful. We've admired them for a long time and hope we can spend some time. The real reason you're here tonight is to tell me how to pronounce the name of the author of The Three-Body Problem. Sure. Um, so you can either do it um, in the Chinese customary way, which is to give the surname first and then the given name. So it's Liu Cixin. Um, or you can do it the way um, that Tor has done it in order to facilitate shopping at bookstores and, and in libraries, uh, which is to switch the orders around and give them in the Western order. So it's going to be Cixin Liu. Okay. So Sushin. Um, Sushin, yeah, that Sushin sounds, Lee. that's close enough. Yep. Okay. Close enough. <laughs> so now I guess the reason that we've asked you, asked you this time to, to come on the podcast is to talk a bit about your experience with translating Chinese science fiction for the English market, which you've been doing for what, about four or five years now? Uh, has it been that long, really? It doesn't seem like it's been that long. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's what, 2014 going on you know, now, and I'm not even sure of the exact point at which, you know, the first translation that you you, know, you did appeared, but it's been a whole... Well, let me check. Actually, I can probably tell you that right away by looking on my website, because I have <laughs> fairly good records of this. So the very first uh, story I translated um, appeared in September of 2011. Okay. So uh, it's been certainly three years. And what was it that attracted you to translating uh, Chinese science fiction for the English market? Uh, well, there was no actual, um, you know, it's not something I set out to do. I actually mm. started doing it sort of by accident. Um, so let me see if I remember what happened. Uh, so uh, what happened was um, my friend, uh, Chen Qiufan, who is one of the most prominent younger generation science fiction writers in China. She, he uses the uh, English name Stanley Chan. Um, he had a story uh, that was translated into English. And he, because we were friends, he just asked me to take a look at it and see if I had any um, editing suggestions for the English translation. Uh, so I did. Um, and then I had so many editing suggestions that I told Stan that I thought it's actually probably better for me to just redo the translation because I was afraid that with all my comments in there, there's not going to be much of the original left. Mm. Uh, so we said, fine, uh, if you want to try it, go for it. Um, so I did. Uh, and then I ended up um, saying, I mean, I think he wanted the translation because he wanted to try to see if he can market some of his fiction to English markets, but he wasn't sure where to submit. So after I did the translation for him, I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll since I'm familiar, familiar with the way submissions work in the um, US, UK market, um, I will submit them for you and, and see what happens. Uh, and it just happens that Clark's World really liked it. And that was the very first story I ever translated called The Fish of Li Jiang. Yeah. Um, and that one ended up winning the um, 2012 Science Fiction and Fantasy World Translation Awards. So that was a very good way to start my translation career. Um, and then I realized that there's a ton of really wonderful science fiction being published in China. Um, by writers I really admire, uh, many of whom uh, I call my friends, and uh, mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot of 
a lot of it being translated into English uh, for whatever reason. Uh, I guess because um, whatever translations from Chinese English that do happen uh, tends to be done on the literary side by academics, uh, and not many of them were paying attention to the science fiction and fantasy that was being written. Uh, and since I was in a position where I could do the translation, um, I figured I would try to build bridges and, and try to help. Uh, both readers and editors here to be able to see some of the stuff that's being published out there in China and to help uh, you know my friends in China to reach new readers. Uh, and so the rest is history. I've learned a lot more in the three years I've been doing it. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that the earliest translations I did, I think were horrible, but I've definitely learned a lot more. Um, and I think now I'm much better at it than I was earlier. Um, so it's been a really educational experience for me trying to learn how to do this. What do you find are the real trans, uh, challenges doing a translation uh, from, you know, from Chinese to English so that it can have a, ch a story or a novel kind of a chance of appealing to a English market? Right. Well, it's a good question, but um, I'm, I'm afraid that the answer is going to be complicated. Uh, so if you don't mind, I'm going to... No, no, little... please. Okay, so I'll bloviate a little bit. Um, so I think a lot of people tend to think that what's most difficult and interesting translation are, are ling linguistic challenges. So, um, you know, there are a lot of these Facebook posts and Tumblr posts about how there are these words that exist in some language that don't exist in English. Oh, how wonderful, how amazing, how magical. Um, I, I think people who actually have done translation for a while, who, who are fluent in multiple languages, find these posts somewhat annoying. At least I find them very annoying <laughs> because the idea that there's a word in Japanese or German that doesn't exist in English and that you have to use a phrase to paraphrastically express the same thing is really just not that interesting at all. Uh, this is sort of like that old canard about how the Eskimos have 200 words for snow. Um, it turns out to be actually not true. As a linguistic fact, that's actually not true. Um, and also, even if it were true, that the idea that there's a word, uh, however defined, is just not very meaningful. I mean, you know, in, in Chinese, what is a word is already a fuzzy concept. Different speakers will have different word segmentation um, uh, results when they try to parse through a, a piece of text. Um, words are sort of these semantically fuzzy um, elements and in English people pay attention to them just because we have a typographical convention where we separate words with spaces um, and in Chinese we don't have that convention the the words of uh, the characters that make up a word are just sort of a jumble together um, and you know in language like German uh, things that we would consider to be separate words are all just jumbled into one thing and we call that mm -hmm. a word but, but these things are just not that interesting. I mean, the fact that you have a word for a particular concept and then in another language you have to use a phrase, so what? As long as the meaning can come across, it's just that's just not all that challenging or interesting. Uh, what I find to be far, and then also there are other things that are linguistically you know, different between Chinese and English that people think might make a big difference, but in practice don't. So for example, Chinese does not have a lot of, um, uh, have an equivalent to the English grammatical uh, tense concept. Uh, Chinese tends to use a lot of auxil auxiliary verbs to express the kind of thing that that English and other um, languages use tenses for, but that's really not that big a deal. Again, you, you, you certainly can express concepts about time um, and, and when something happens uh, using other ways. So the, 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 the fact that there are these linguistic differences is just not that interesting or challenging. What tends to be particular challenging in practice um, are various cultural assumptions and, and ways of um, literally express um, ideas. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, as a written language, Chinese tends to be somewhat different from English in that the use of allusions and historical references is much more prevalent and embedded in the in the literary language than it tends to be the case in English. Um, so English, sometimes you will hear phrases like the sword of Democles and things like that, um, which are you know historical allusions that are supposed to express a concept. Uh, over time, I think the trend in English writing is to 
sort of go away from that. You tend to see more of that kind of thing in older writing, in classical writing, where people had much more of a shared classical education. So when you're referencing um, the Wrath of Achilles and things like that, it, it's more meaningful. Um, modern English writing tends to, to to treat that kind of thing as fussy and pretentious and, and not do a lot of it. Um, Chinese is quite different. Uh, modern literary Chinese writing still has a lot of the classical aspects in which good literary writing is supposed to be studded with fixed expressions and idioms that make extensive references to historical literary mm-hmm. predecessors. So in some, in some sense, when uh, someone who doesn't know, you know, this aspect of Chinese literary um, uh, just style, try to read something in Chinese, they, 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 if the phrases are translated literally into English, it can give off this very weird sense of um, people just piling on references to things that you have, you have no clue about. It, the, the effect, actually, for someone who's not a Chinese reader uh, can, can be similar to this Star Trek The Next Generation episode called Dharmic. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but this yeah. is the one where uh, Picard lands on a planet and meets this alien race. Um, they they can they can communicate with each other just fine. Uh, the universal translator is working, but what the alien is saying just makes no sense. He keeps on saying these things, making references to ancient historical heroes, um, standing at cities that they don't know. Picard doesn't know anything about. And, and it turns out that after a while that, that the alien race communicates by, by using historical illusions. They, 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 they cite to historical uh, stories, yeah. epics, um, and, and, and tries to express some concept about the present situation uh, by pointing out similarities between the present and the past. Um, Chinese is actually a lot like that uh, for for someone who's not steeped in the in the traditions that are being referenced. So there might come, you know, uh, even some very simple fixed expression um, that that you sort of peer into ends up being some kind of reference to a historical event two thousand years ago, unless you know what the event was. The phrase itself would not be meaningful to you. You would have to just memorize by by rote memorization what the expression means, even though it evokes a very rich historical tradition. So well, that kind of thing can be hard to to translate into English because you know you don't want to do the thing where you translate everything literally and then add a bunch of footnotes and explain everything. Um, and at the same time. If you don't convey some sense of that, the some aspect of the original is lost because the way these allusions are used sometimes can be used ironically, sometimes they're used in a subversive way, sometimes they're used in a way uh, that makes uh, correspondence between some ancient historical issue and a modern political issue in a really novel, insightful way. And these kinds of playful linguistic uh, literary expression techniques are just not very easy to convey in English. So. I guess what I would say is that the hardest challenges in translation are almost never linguistic, but cultural, um, because the idea of, of expressing yourself culturally um, and, 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 and what's considered good literary expression in Chinese is just so different from English that trying to capture some sense of that in English without going overboard with footnotes is very difficult. Um, so that's, that's like the quick high-level answer. <laughs> Well, one alternative to that, there was a, I, 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 I imagine you're familiar, 50, 60 or 70 years ago, uh, one of the more controversial translators, I guess, in the history of literature was Ezra Pound, uh, who translated mm-hmm. Chinese, classic Chinese lyrics of, of, the, of uh, Du Fu and uh, the poet we used to call Li Po, who is now Li Bai. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he essentially, his approach was essentially what you're saying. We cannot... We cannot gain the emotional resonance that a Chinese reader can can get from these poems. So he basically rewrote them in what he considered to be a Western equivalent, a Western emotional equivalent that at the time drove actual Chinese scholars nuts because they said, you're writing poems based on Chinese poems. You're not translating them at all. And he said, right, that's the point. Right. I, 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 I totally uh, I'm very familiar with that whole controversy. And uh, and so here's the thing. Um, 
this is actually not uh, an unusual approach, especially in translations of poetry. Um, so, for example, um, there are some very beautiful uh, Japanese poems that I only know through Chinese translations. Um, if you compare the Chinese translations with their English translations, um, that they are not—it's it, hard to even recognize them being the same poem because. Chinese translators, when they translate Japanese poems, um, tend to do exactly what Ezra Pond does. Uh, so they take a very um, loose approach. I mean, you know, in, in Chinese translation theory, there are, there are multiple camps, but the two main camps are translating literally versus translating in an expressive manner. So when it comes to translating Japanese poetry, a lot of Chinese translators take the expressive approach, uh, whereas I think a lot of English translators of Japanese poetry tend to take the literal approach. So um, it ends up being the case that often it is easier to rediscover what the original Japanese poem is based on an English translation mm -hmm. than it is based on the Chinese translation, even though I often think that the Chinese, Chinese rendering is far more beautiful than the English one. Um, this could be also just a matter of taste. Uh, but the point is that in translating poetry, um, that kind of looser, emotionally driven, expressive style is more acceptable than in prose um, because for a variety of reasons. I mean, hmm. one of the things is that for, for poetry, what you're really trying to get at is, um, okay, so first of all, as a high level matter, I totally agree that when you're doing translations, you're, 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 you have to balance faithfulness with lots of other demands. You're, you're doing a recreation. Um, you know, I think, um, I think it's, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it's, it's, uh, it's Weaver who said once um, that a translator is really a performing artist. When you're doing a translation, mm -hmm. you're really performing something and not, not a literal rendering of the original thing in a new language, but you're actually performing it in a new medium. And I totally agree with that. You know, here, here, it's a performance. So you have to, to, to deviate from the original in many ways to, to make sure that the, the new audience in the new medium can actually get what you're doing um, and uh, rather than be overwhelmed by your attempt to be faithful, which often actually just sort of ruins the work. But at the same time, the amount of freedom you have as a translator is not unlimited. Um, you, you, you can do a, you know, a recreation, a performance, but you still have to actually perform the original work. You, you can't just go off and, and use the original as a mere inspiration and do your own thing. There, there is a limit to how far you can go with this. In poetry, I think we're willing to accept a lot more this kind of freedom from the translator than we are from prose. Uh, because in, in poetry, really, what you're trying to go for is, is a lyrical feel, uh, a kind of emotional experience. Um, it, it may not be the same emotional experience, but it will be an echo, a, a good echo. In prose, on the other hand, you're, you're, you're trying to really tell the same story and trying to recreate that story for the new reader in, I think, as faithful a manner as possible. And also, depending on the work, you know, the, 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 the translator is, not, is, is under different kinds of power dynamics. So in the case of somebody like Ezra Pond, it's, it's a different thing because he's, you know, a prominent Anglophone poet. So his original um, writers that he's translating are dead uh, Chinese mm -hmm. poets thousands of years ago. Um, the, the readers he's, he's translating for are more interested in him than they are in the original Chinese poet. So in that sense, yes, for Ezra to do what he does is, is a lot freer. He has a lot more room to play because people are really interested in reading him. I'm in a totally different position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, yeah. versus the readers here because the Anglophone reader is interested in reading The Three-Body Problem because it's written by a writer who is very prominent in China whom they've never heard of, or for the most part, they've not heard of. They're not here to read Ken Liu. They're here to read Liu Xing. So they're not interested in what I'm doing. They're very interested in what the original is doing. And yeah. Liu Xing is alive. He is, he is a friend. He's a prominent writer, far more prominent than I am. Um, and, uh, and in China, his fans are you know, numbering the millions. And whatever I do in translating this book is being watched by millions of people in China very closely. I mean, I know that when this translation goes out, there will be a bazillion readers in China who will 
take over everything I do and every decision I made and debate it and, and question what mm -hmm. I do. Um, I, I just have to sort of, you know, put on my flame suit and just be ready to accept the criticism because that's going to happen. Um, so is it fair to say then that a lot of Chinese readers are going to, that they read English now, that they're going to be reading your translation and checking it? Um, uh, quite, example, yes, it is, it is quite fair to say that a large number of Chinese readers uh, will be checking over the translation and, uh, and uh, questioning a lot of my decisions, yes. Because I remember talking to some friends in Sweden and Finland who basically told me that one of the reasons American novels don't get translated into Swedish and Finnish is because everybody's read them by the time they would be translated, and they read them in English, of course. Yep, yep, oh. yep. And I think to some extent that's happening in China now, too. A lot of prominent um, you know, Anglophone works, uh, by the time they're translating to Chinese, a large uh, portion of the population have already read it in English. I mean, you know, it's not quite like Sweden or Finland, because even though many of the readers in China are very proficient in English and, and are happy to read it, they still feel that sometimes they're, they can read faster or more comfortable in, in Chinese. And sometimes, honestly, the work is improved by translation. And I don't think I will be, uh, you know, pissing people off by saying that I've experienced this myself. I mean, for example, um, the Da Vinci Code is a book that in English I found very difficult to read because there are a, a variety of literary techniques that are used in that book that I just didn't think were my cup of tea. But the Chinese translation I found to be a far superior work. Um, so there are times where you prefer to read the translation than, than the original because you know, the translator can do a better job. Okay, given the familiarity with Western fiction, uh, would it be fair to say that a work like The Three-Body Problem is informed by traditional science fiction? One of the reasons I ask that is that I've, I've not read a lot of traditional Chinese novels, but I did a long time ago read The Dream of the Red Chamber. My first thought of that was that this doesn't look like a novel at all. This looks like uh -huh. something, this looks like a really long tome poem in which not a lot happens, uh, but which is elegantly nuanced. The Three-Body uh -huh. Problem reads like a science fiction story. It has suspense, uh -huh. it has alternate points of view, it has a dramatic um, chronological leap after the first uh, section. Uh, so it, it looks very much like a book written by someone who was pretty familiar with, with American and British science fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that 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 I um, I can I can you know I normally don't like to speak on behalf of the author because I think the author should try to um, answer people himself. But on this one, I'm 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 happy to answer on behalf of Liu uh, Cixin because you know we've talked about this extensively and he's written about it extensively as well. Um, he would he would totally agree with you. He he um, he has been extensively extensively. I mean, he became a science fiction writer because he was originally a science fiction fan. He. He is a huge fan of um, Anglo-American science fiction, like Arthur C. Clarke, um, Asimov. Uh, you know, he's read the, these 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 works, and he's read the classics from the continent. Um, you know, Jules Verne, and so on and so forth. Um, the 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 science fiction genre uh, in China is seen as, without a doubt, a Western import. Um, mm. So science fiction writers obviously model themselves and are influenced by their Western um, predecessors. Um, and of course, you know, this is slightly different in that he's also very familiar with the Soviet school of science fiction, which I think a lot of Western readers may not be familiar with. But he's, he's very familiar with that tradition as well. So a lot of the elements of his work, if you're familiar with the Soviet science fiction, you would also see echoes and, and find um, uh, echoes in, in, in Lewis' work. But um, on the whole, uh, I, I, I think that there's no doubt that the three-body problem and the sequels are very much in the tradition of, of, of what we think of in the West as science fiction. Um, so you, you, you shouldn't find it narratively alien in the way that a classical Chinese novel would. Although, um, you know, I, I do want to point out that uh, Liu Cixin obviously is also a very well-read uh, traditional Chinese scholar. So he his his work would also have influences from traditional Chinese um, uh, narrative techniques and literary tradition. 
Um, but those elements may not be as easy to pick out for some reader who's not as familiar with them. But yes, the, the Western influence is very clearly seen, and he would totally acknowledge that and agree with you. Let me ask, why did you choose the three-body problem as the first novel-length translation that you've done? Um, so this, this is a complicated question, but perhaps <laughs> the answer is simple. Uh, the, the, the complicated question is there are actually, you know, a large number of novels that could have been my first choice for translation. Um, I'm a fan of, of Liu Zixing and also of, of the three body problem and the sequels, but I probably would not have picked, um, the three body problem as the very first novel to translate just because it's quite complicated and, and daunting. I would have picked something else. Um, but the fact is there are not that many opportunities for translating a novel length work sure. into English. Uh, it's just, there's not much of a market for translated fiction here. Um, so I'm really hoping that the three-body problem would break through that. I've done speculative, you know, done work on spec for other novelists that have gone nowhere because it's very hard to sell a translation. So yeah. basically, the three-body problem is one of the first works that actually got support from a company that was willing to pay me to do so. So mm -hmm. that's why it ended up being the first work to be translated. Um, I, I you know, like I said, it's it's quite challenging. I, I would not have picked this as my first novel translation if I could have helped it. But uh, as it turns out, you know, there was there was somebody willing to pay me, uh, and I wanted to you know do this, and uh, so here we are. I, don't I, think, I think what's go ahead, Gary. Well, it's just gonna, just as as a kind of parenthesis here. Uh, it's probably worth giving some credit to, to Tom Doherty to the extent he was involved in these decisions, that he has periodically tried to support translated fiction with Wolfgang Jeschke's novel a couple of years ago and uh, uh, Andreas Eschbach maybe 10 or 10 years before that. Uh, so it, 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 all of these I know are risky decisions on his part. Uh, but, um, but this one looks like it has, in my sense, and, and kind of full disclosure, Ken, I've written my review of it, but it won't appear until December. Um, it strikes me that this has a lot of the kind of narrative hooks that Western readers will, will pick up on, and a couple of other things that I don't know if you were thinking about translating. The first, the first segment of this novel is, is a horror story set during the Cultural Revolution. And I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that a young, uh, a, a young woman physicist watch, watches her father beaten to death by people who believe that relativity and quantum mechanics is counter-revolutionary and reactionary. Now that, yeah. on the one hand, is uh, gives the American reader, speaking of speaking as one, the sense that my God, this cultural revolution was really worse than I thought, and we didn't experience it. And then you have the second thought: Wait a minute, we are experiencing right now a denial of science on the basis of ideology and religion. So there's an alienation and a familiarity that comes at the same time, and you haven't even gotten into the science fiction at that point yet. Right. I just thought I'd throw that out. Excellent. Let me ask you, I mean, Ken, do you think that there is a opposition to reading translated fiction, or do you think it's more just a simple fact that People are unfamiliar with the works that are being translated, so it's harder to build a readership for a writer so that they can go on to have their oeuvre, you know, sort of translated. Um, so I'm not, um, you know, a publisher, so I don't no. have the numbers to back up mm. the speculation I have. Sure, sure. Um, so I will just speak as a, as a reader. Um I think translated fiction is actually very hard to make successful for a variety of reasons. Um, probably the most important reason uh, in in the U.S. and in Britain as well, I think, um, is that uh, the the Anglo-American culture, speaking as a whole, is a net cultural exporter in today's world. Um, you know, we our cultural productions are exported to the rest of the world. 
Um, the, the only other country that comes close to the amount of cultural export we do is probably Japan. And Japan mainly exports to Asia and, you know, to some extent to the West as well. But for the rest of the world, and especially China, they are net cultural importers. So they tend to import a lot of the stuff that we produce. So as, as a reader living in a market that's a net cultural exporter, like in, in America, I think it's quite natural for readers to have this sort of, um, uh, you know, unspoken or even unconscious sense of superiority. Because if something is worth doing, the artist would have done it here um, and it would have done it in English. Um, and so if there's something interesting to be done in the world artistically, we expect it to happen here. We expect the rest of the world to just follow um, yeah. and, and, and be happy with um, what we give them. Um, the, the idea that we might be interested in something one of these, uh, you know, lesser quote unquote countries um, can do um, is against the natural grain of, of, of American cultural assumptions because, you know, we mm. possess the wonder of the world called Hollywood and uh, we export to the rest of the world, you know, not not the other way around. So I, I think there's there's a little bit of that at play because we assume that what we have is the best, um, mm. and 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 that uh, that other places don't really have that much to offer us. Uh, but that's not that that's just one speculative you know speculation. The the other thought I have is that translated fiction probably doesn't do well here just because it's really hard to market. And it's very expensive to to produce. It's hard to market because the authors tend to be not the sort of people who you can easily bring here to sure. put on book tours, to put on interviews, right. whatever, to help promote the book. And you also have to pay a translator in addition to the author to get the book produced in the first place. Um, you know, I I I have to really thank um, Tor Books and um, China Education Publication Import Export Corporation or CEPIEC, which are the two companies responsible for bringing the three-body problem and the sequels into, into the American market. Um, Tor books especially, you know, Liz Gorinsky, uh, my editor, um, and Leah Withers, my publicist, have done an enormous amount of work with me to, to, to try to promote this book and try to make the book as good as, as we can make it. Um, the, the amount of effort that Tor has put into to, to help get the message out, to, to get the books into interested readers' hands and to reach out and, 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 and show people what the book is about by posing ex excerpts, by having me do essays, by having Liu Cixin do essays that I translate, uh, and so on and so forth. I, I think they, they've really done as much as I, I can imagine a publisher do to, to help a translated work find its readership here. Um, and if, you know, if this doesn't work, then uh, it's because the book itself is not interesting. I, I don't think we can blame it on the publisher not working hard to try to get the book out. Um, well, so, things, go ahead. I was going to say one of the things, and this is partly a message for Liz and for Tom, is that if you finish this book, you're not only waiting for the second volume, you're waiting for the third volume because uh, one of the very clever things, and I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you you don't take credit for this, I'm assuming Sujin Liu is, 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 it's in the novel. There's a very clear foreshadowing of a second volume and a foreshadowing of a third volume that looks absolutely mind-blowing based on what it almost has to be. And I'm <laughs> that you come out because I really want to know what that third volume contains. Well, we, we are doing it as fast as we can. I know Joe has already, um, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I know that I'm working very hard on the translation for the third volume, and we're trying to get these out ASAP. And, and you're right, the, the third volume is mind-blowing. Uh, you know, the, the entire, I don't think I'm giving anything away, again, by saying that the three-body problem and its sequels as a whole tell the story of humanity's march to the stars that that's really what it's about and and the scope of the first book is is minuscule really compared to yeah. what the next two books are about and and i i, I agree with you it's, it's mind-blowing and i can't wait till readers get it if we could have gotten it out faster i'm sure we would have uh, but we already were working as hard as we can to to get these books out and you really can't hurry it because with translations especially, you just have to make sure you take your time and get it right. Because I've read lots of translations from Japanese, for example, into English, and how, how you know, depending on the translator and how much effort was taken, the result can be just 
tremendous with the very same author, two different translators taking different amounts of time to do it. I, I know that the result is just night and day. There's one book that I could just, I loved it. I thought it was like the best thing ever. And another book I thought was just not finishable. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that we have to be careful about. We got to make sure the translation is well done. Is there any... Go ahead. Is there any move to try and make the uh, translation consistent across the three books? Because obviously a different translator is doing the middle book. And given, as you said uh, earlier, to some extent any translation is a performance, is there going to be a real difference in feel between books one, two, and three? Um, I think I think there, there will be. Um, so... For somebody who's reading, you know, the three books in sequence, I think the experience will be similar to listening to different symphonies by Beethoven, for example, performed by different orchestras um, and by different conductors, because there is a difference of interpretation and a difference of style. Uh, you know, translations of performance art, so there will be differences. Um, Joe and I did work together to try to make sure that we're at least consistent uh, in terminology. And of course, Liz is our editor, so she will also help us to make sure that the resulting texts are consistent in, in, in that sense. But despite these efforts, there will be differences because, um, you know, uh, Joe Martins and I are different people. So we're going to have different interpretations of the text we're performing, and we will have different uh, ways of, of trying to make the text accessible and um, and bring them bring them to the anglophone audience. But I, I, I think the, the differences will be overwhelmed by the unity of vision uh, of the author. Uh, I mean, Liu Cixin really had a grand vision that he put into play when he wrote these three books. And I think despite the the differences in the in the translators, I think the the, the overwhelming sense of the author's vision is going to come across. Um, I've, I've read a draft of Joe's translation, and I think it's, it's excellent. So I, I don't think that's something for people to worry about. I think I think if anything, readers will actually appreciate it. They're, you know, they'll get a sense of different translators approaching the same author's work, and they'll get a slightly different flavor of, of how how this works. Uh, but but the result is going to be very good, and uh, I, I think they'll appreciate the experience. Mm -hmm. My sense is that the few books you mentioned some Japanese translations, and it, it seems to me that in the rare cases where fantastic literature from Japanese has succeeded in English, it has been with the assistance of mainstream recognition. In other words, you get uh, Murakami, or before that you get a, a Kobo Abe, and yep. they're, they're received as literary writers, and therefore the genre writers more or less embrace them. The genre readers, I should say, more or less embrace them. Um, and the, the the way at least Japanese fantastica has has gained a foothold in the United States is, is through that. It, it looks literary. It looks surreal. It looks like uh, uh, po it looks postmodern in various ways. I guess my question related to that is, first of all, how do you break into that literary part of the market? And secondly, is science fiction in China, as fully ghettoized as it has been historically in the UK and the US. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Both excellent questions. Um, on the first part, um, how do you break into that literary market? I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it is the case that some Chinese writers like Moyen and so on had been embraced by the academic. Um, side of, of the UK and the US. And so, you know, there are literary translations done of, of these very literary writers, some of whom write in a very postmodern way. Um, I also think it depends on the work. Um, Liu Cixin, I, I have to say, is not a good candidate for that kind of crossover. Um, he writes uh, in a very classical, hard sci-fi vein. What, you know, what he's really writing about, um, and, and uh, again, he will agree with me on this because I'm, I'm, I'm really quoting him, not, not making up my own interpretation here. Liu Cixin really is, is a sci-fi writer who is inspired and attracted to the romance of science. You know, he's, he's written in the postword to um, the postscript to uh, The Three-Body Problem, I think, where he talks about how, you know, the reason he got into sci-fi is because he's attracted by the beauty of science. Um, the, 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 the idea is that, you know, we humans are obsessed by romantic stories of love, of, 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 of um, these emotional 
uh, connections between people. But these things really pale when you when you when you're comparing to the romance of the stars, the romance of science, the the beauty of atoms smashing to other, of universes being born, of higher dimensional universes being imagined and becoming real. These are much grander epics than any epics that we can tell in human history. These are romances much more uh, wondrous than any romance between people can be. You know, what is Helen of Troy compared to the the, the grace of an exploding star? You know, this is what really mot motivates Gilsusin to, to write these books. This is what really pulls him in. Um, it, it's the kind of, of, of original wonder that drives um, you know, somebody like Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, I, I think that kind of, of wonder has in some, some sense uh, faded a little bit in the Anglo-American uh, science fiction uh, genre in, in, in the contemporary times because, you know, we're more interested in uh, some of the smaller, uh, for lack of a better word, some of the more human-scale problems um, um, than this pure attraction to the romance of science. But, but that's really what those things are motivated by. So when, when that's, that's your motivation and when that's what's really moving you, um, I, I think the work is going to be embraced more by genre readers than by literary um, readers uh, because the, the, the crossover appeal tends to not really happen for this kind of uh, attraction for the grandness of science. So having said that, there are I'm other... Go ahead, Jonathan. Go ahead. I didn't say anything. Oh, what I was going to say was that uh, I understand that the, what we call the classic sense of wonder, which Clark was very, very good at, uh, but one of Clark's failings, which, which is not a failing, I think, in the three-body problem, is that if you can create a, a believable, complex character who experiences that sense of wonder, as he does with the uh, with the woman who is basically the protagonist of the first uh, the, the main protagonist of the whole thing but especially the first third of the novel she becomes a complex interesting tragic character uh, frankly beyond anything that Arthur Clarke could have created now the sense of wonder in my view is something you can convey directly to the reader through as you mentioned exploding stars spect spectacles the kind of thing Olaf Stapleton did but novelistically, you want to have a character experience this, and you want to understand through empathy the character's experience of it. And it seems to me that to that extent, the three-body problem does that actually better than, than what Clark was able to do with his not very persuasive characters in most of his fiction. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I don't, I'm not arguing with that. I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I'm just pointing out that... Liu Cixin himself would would describe his emphasis as as on the wonder, on the grandness of things, yeah. and uh, you know he he would call his own fiction uh, the fiction of ideas. He's he's not he's not he would not call himself a character driven writer. Um, okay. And uh, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm being unfair to him on this. Uh, we we've talked about it, and and this is really what's driving him. Um, but I, I was going to say that you know back to your original question. Um, there are some Chinese science fiction writers or, or writers who are classified as science fiction who are closer to the Murakami mode um, in that what they do is, is far more postmodern, surreal, um, or, or character-driven uh, than, than the sort of science fiction that the three-body problem represents. Like, uh, Han Song is, is, is one who writes these wonderful, surreal, postmodern stories uh, that I don't think has been translated extensively into uh, English, and I think uh, if anybody has a has the kind of crossover appeal to the to the literary market, uh, Han Song would be one. Um, he, I'm actually trying to recommend some of his works to be translated for uh, Clark's World, um, so hopefully that will happen, and uh, some of those works will be exposed to Western readers, and uh, hopefully find more interesting um, more interest here in the West. Um, but, um, so, so back to the, back to, I think you had a question about, um, Jonathan, if you want to remind me of the second part of your question originally. I, I, I'm afraid I may have forgotten it myself. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll go on. If we think of it, we'll, 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 we'll yeah. go back to it. There was, but here's, here's the thing that, that, that it seems to me historically has been one of the things that made Fantastica from other countries, and specifically Asian countries, acceptable, and that is, it, it doesn't look like science fiction, it looks like allegory. Several months ago, 
somebody, and I apologize if I forget who it was or if I'm, because I didn't respond very, very quick, quickly, sent me a manuscript of translation, I guess a new translation, of a novel from, I believe, the 1930s called Cat Country by... Oh, cool. Yep, yep. Lao Shea. I know the that... work. Okay. Lao, Lao Shea. Yeah, I know the country. Yeah. It's oh, yeah, Sorry, I know the work. Yeah. But it's science fiction in the same way C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet is science fiction. It's kind yes, of more totally out, agree with you. <laughs> which is set on Mars, but apart from the setting on Mars, you would not, it doesn't need to be science fiction in any way at all. And I think that's what people tend to think of when they think of si any kind of science fiction that comes out of a non-Anglo-American, non-Arthur C. Clarke Asimov tradition as being something which is just sort of loosely allegorical that uses other planets the way it might as well use uh, fairyland in the fantasy. Right, right. No, I, I understand what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> Cat Country was an enjoyable satire, uh, but Mars could have been, you know, Wonderland for the for, for all it was necessary for the for the function of that novel. Yeah, and that's, I, I don't I think we tend to think of sort of science fiction like things, science fiction oidal things that we see from other cultures. If they don't look like they're imitations of American science fiction, we don't recognize them as science fiction. Right, right. There, there is that too. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a really stupid kind of uninformed question? <clears throat> Up until a while ago, I guess the only sort of fun fact I knew about Chinese science fiction was that uh, is it, uh, Science Fiction World is the biggest science fiction magazine in the world in terms mm -hmm. of its print run and subscriber base. What would you say are the things, and I know it's an almost impossible question to answer, that somebody coming to Chinese science fiction for the first time should be aware of? What What is it like in China for the science fiction marketplace? Oh, okay, yes. This actually reminds me of your the second part of your original question, which is whether science fiction is also ghettoized in Yeah, that's, yeah. that was that's China. exactly what. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um the the um so so here's my answer. So, I'm going to say first of all that I'm not speaking as some sort of expert on Chinese science fiction. I mean, I've read a lot of science fiction, Chinese science fiction. I I know a lot of Chinese science fiction writers. Um I've I've actually been published in China quite a bit. Uh, but but the market and, and the country is so complicated that I don't think anybody can really claim to be an expert and to be able to you know tell you the truth whatever about about China and Chinese science fiction because it's just such a huge vast subject. So I can give you my impressions, sure. which is somewhat informed, but by no means definitive or authoritative. Um, it is the case that uh, science fiction in China is very much ghettoized in the way that uh, science fiction has traditionally been sort of, you know, stuck in a corner in the Anglo-American tradition. Um, science fiction is primarily, has been primarily read by young people in high school and college. Um, the Historically, for some reason, uh, uh, well, actually, the reason is very simple. It's because Science fiction historically in China was seen as a way of popularizing science for um, young people. So it's classified as a branch of juvenile literature. So uh, people read it in high school and college, um, and then they, they quote unquote grow out of it uh, once they graduate from college and have to start working. So science fiction is sort of the escapist um, educational material, you adventure stories you read when you're young. Uh, and then later on, you forget about it. Um, it the, the readership tends to be very dominated by young men uh, who are interested in STEM topics. Uh, so science fiction in China tends to be valued in so far as they are hard and focused on science. So the more formulas and more jargon you can throw in there, the the likelihood that it's going to be judged better um, mm -hmm. is, is going to go up. Um, so... Mm -hmm. All that stuff said, uh, it tends to give science fiction kind of an unapproachable air for the general audience. General readers tend to feel that they won't understand it if they try to read science fiction, so they stay away from it. Um, having said so, uh, that is slowly changing over time. Um, there are um, more and more uh, writers, especially the younger writers, um, in recent years who have tried to 
break science fiction out of that kind of mold and by trying to write more interesting stories and stories that are focused not so much on the engineering side of things, but rather on interesting stories inspired and informed by technology or scientific speculation. So, um, you know, Stanley Chan, who I mentioned before, Bao Shu, um, Xia Jia, these are all, all writers I've translated. They're all, they all belong to the younger generation. They um, tend to, to write stories that are far more um, slipstream, for lack of a better word, and more uh, have broader appeal than the traditional stories um, that, that are considered science fiction in China are. Um, and some literary magazines, uh, including um, you know People's Literature, which is the most uh, prestigious literary journal in China, uh, have started publishing some works from writers who are considered traditionally science fiction writers. Um, and a lot of writers are, are trying to, you know, break out of that mold of being considered science fiction writers by uh, trying to market themselves um, as, as having mainstream appeal. Mm -hmm. So there are more science fiction-y stories appearing in mainstream markets, and, and the distribution of these magazines are, you know, even far, far greater than what science fiction world was able to achieve. So... I think there is a trend towards mainstreaming of science fiction in China, and there's more interest in these sort of stories. Um, although, I think if you ask a hardcore Chinese fan, they may argue that some of these stories are not truly science fiction, uh, and the, the arguments will be very similar and familiar to you and me, because we experience this sort of thing all the time, you know, and you argue, is Margaret Atwood science fiction? You know, yeah. is, is David yeah. Mitchell writing science fiction? It's the same kind of thing that's happening in China. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, on the one hand, I'm seeing the genre sort of expanding because writers who would otherwise be considered in the ghetto of science fiction are being published in that new venues and reaching new audiences while some hardcore fans are grumbling and saying that, you know, we have our small circle here and, and we had really wonderful hard sci-fi and now it's being ruined by, by this, by this oh. growth and these new people. So yeah, it, it it's all very interesting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, the, the, the only difference is it sounds to me like it's a compressed history. It sounds like you're moving from Hugo Gerns back to the new wave within one generation. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. That that many uh, you know scholars of science fiction have said the same thing, which is that in a lot of ways, what's happening in China is sort of a very compressed version of of what of the evolution of genre here. Uh, it's just that you have, just like everything else in China, you know, where they're trying to compress two hundred years of development into thirty years. It's it's happening in, in, in the cultural field as well. Do you think there's a frustration there that, in, in China that the great works of Chinese science fiction aren't better known outside of the country? Well, I know that there's there's definitely a lot of frustration over Three Body. Um, so so I, I have to sort of tell you, you know, the the place that Liu Cixin and the Three Body problem holds in, in, in China is pretty unique. Um, a lot of, even though I think there's a lot of really fascinating work being written in China now, um, at the time, the Three Body Problem was published, you know, a few years ago. Um, most of the good science fiction in China were just in the short form. Uh, people were writing short stories that were really good, but very few people were writing novel-length works that were worthwhile. Um, mm -hmm. This is really the very first person who wrote a, a hardcore, you know, hard sci-fi space opera series that actually sold many copies. Um, you know, publishers were despairing the idea that they could make money off of science fiction because the, there were no real science fiction novels of, of quality. Um, and this is really is the very first one who did something that was amazing. And so for Chinese fans, uh, this is place just, I, I, I have a hard time describing his plays among the fans. You know, he's, he's really like this incredible semi-mythic figure who single-handedly wrote something that everybody would agree is at an equal level to the works of Western science fiction. You know, Chinese fans read lots of translation from the West, so they're very familiar with the the, the works of classical masters as well as, as today's best writers in the West. Mm -hmm. So they compare their works against domestically produced works, and, you know, the domestic works are often found, found wanting. But Liu Cixin is the first Chinese writer who fans in China believe 
and 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 say is the equal of the Western masters. So there was a lot of frustration for years that there was no English edition of his work possible or available, and you know that there's no one who who would be interested in doing the translation or who has been contacted to do the translation. So when Tor Books, you know, uh, had this deal to 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 bring the Three Body Problem uh, and the sequels out in in the U.S. Um, I, I I dare say that the Chinese fans were celebrating far more uh, than the few <laughs> Anglophone <laughs> readers here who who heard about it. I mean, there was a lot more celebration in China on the news than here. I, I told Liz about it, and Liz was <laughs> amused, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, they were they were very excited. When you say the equal of uh, a, you know, classic American science fiction works, I think that raises another issue, which is related to this kind of um, chauvinistic problem among American readers. And it's it's not just among American readers. One of the things that I've been told, uh, not, not in regard to Chinese or Japanese science fiction, I was told by a French translator um, who also worked for a significant French magazine at the time, Galaxies, that the reason most French science fiction didn't get translated was because it was warmed over versions of American science fiction. And I talked to a German writer who said, well, the problem with German science fiction is that a lot of it looks like Perry Rodin. Uh, mm-hmm. And when somebody comes along who actually makes an original contribution, people are going to be a little bit skeptical. Uh, so that major writers, I mean, you're right, there are a handful, uh, the Strugatskys, Lim, um, Murakami, I suppose, but but yep. by and large, the suspicion on the part of American readers is that are these people really engaging with this dialogue? Are they really adding something to the to the long the, the decades century long discussion that is science fiction, or are they simply redoing versions of of pulp science fiction from the 30s, the Perry Rodin pro- problem? So there's some skepticism there that has to be overcome on the part of uh, any new novel. I think the three body problem can do that. Um, mm-hmm. I hope it. Anyway, but yeah. but it's it, it's a problem which has some basis in reality. Yes, Gary, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, um, I would say that Chinese fans would be 100% in agreement with you. In fact, they are the harshest judges. They're probably harsher uh, on Chinese writers than uh, any American readers would be. Um, you know, any any Chinese writer who tries to write science fiction uh, would have to compete for reader attention against translations. That is just a fact that, um, so, so I'll give you an analogy. You know, people asked Yasushin how he felt about publishing The Three-Body Problem in English. And he said he was, he was, he was you know, he was very reserved in his uh, expectations. And he said that, you know, look, America is, is, the, is the source and, uh, and, and base of science fiction. That's where the best science fiction is written. Uh, for a Chinese work to be able to compete there, the fact that it's being published is already a great victory. I mean, it's for he said that this is analogous to an American writer writing a martial arts novel and hoping to achieve success in China. You know, it's this yeah. this that's just the way it is. America is the base of of science fiction. That's where science fiction came of age and where science fiction has developed into this modern. Uh, greatness. So for for my work to be translated and to be published, there is already a great accomplishment. I don't I don't expect more than that. But for most Chinese readers, uh, you know, a work of by a Chinese writer has to be really good, really really good to 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 get their attention because they they're they're exposed to so much translated fiction from the West and they know what good science fiction is. And so. A Chinese writer uh, would have to do something really interesting, unusual, to, to get their attention. And uh, Liu Cixin, you know, managed to do that. He he came in here um, as a Chinese writer uh, and and got these very jaded Chinese readers to be impressed by his work. So the fact that he managed to overcome their skepticism is uh, is is pretty impressive because that's a very picky audience over there. It sounds like it, but it also sounds like a huge audience. I remember, uh, and, and Jonathan and I both have our mutual friend who's been dead now five years, Charles Brown, who went to, made several visits to China. And the reason he loved visiting China is he would go to what he told me at the time was considered a medium to small size science fiction convention in Zhengzhou or someplace. And there'd be 
3,000 people in the audience. There'd be, you know, one session would be the size of an entire American science fiction convention. And, uh, and what he kept saying was a moderate success, a mediocrely, a mediocre successful writer in China has more readers than the most successful writer in the United States. Yes, and that is true. I can attest personally that I've my short fiction has probably had more readers in China than it does here. Um, mm-hmm. That that's true. But um, at the same time, you know, the 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 economics are such that um, very few writers can make a living supporting themselves by writing. Um, you yeah. know, as as I mentioned before, most of the fiction is is short fiction. Uh, published in magazines, and the amount of um, of uh, uh, fee you get is is not very high. You have to write novels, and you have to sell many many novels to to be able to make a living. Um, even somebody as successful as Liu Xing still works at his day job as an engineer. So you know <laughs> it's it's pretty tough. I mean, it is a big marketing by numbers, uh, but in terms of the amount of money that's flowing in the field. Wow not even close to what the U.S. does. I mean, you have to remember, here in the U.S., most of the money in science fiction is being pumped into the market by Hollywood. Um, what what writers are really going for is that Hollywood deal, that oh, yeah. TV adaptation deal. That That's what, you know, what really mm-hmm. make your payday. Um, there's there's not an equivalent of that in China because yeah. there's no Hollywood. So, you know, that, that major source of money is not there. Let me just ask, we're getting towards the end, well, in fact, we're just past the top of our hour, and I just want to touch on one thing quickly before we do go, and that is, you've taken on an ongoing role at Clark's World to bring Chinese science fiction into the uh, English-speaking market. What can you tell us about that? Uh, not a whole lot other than what uh, Neil has uh, revealed. Basically, um, I work with this company called Storycom uh, and a committee of other writers um, in China who... Uh, uh, basically, I'm part of the committee, so we together make recommendations to Neo uh, as to interesting stories from China uh, that we think may be worthy candidates for translation. Um, and then Storycom uh, hires somebody to generate English synopses of these stories and then present them to Neo. And Neil looks through them and, you know, exercises editorial judgment as to which story he thinks would be good, uh, mm-hmm. a good candidate to be translated. Um, and then um, Storycom pays for the translation, uh, and then Neil takes a look at the translation and treats it as any other submission uh, and evaluates whether the story is worthy of being in Clark's world or not. Uh, and if it is, it, it makes it, and if not, it doesn't. Um, so... My role is limited pretty much to the recommendation stage, where I try to just bring to Storycom and Neil's attention some work that I, I feel is worthy um, of being featured in Clark's World. And one of the good things about um, Clark's World is that they are very, very, um, uh, they are very diverse. Um, you know, Neil has has, has very um, eclectic tastes, and, and he has a strong aesthetic about what he wants, but he also is very open to new things. So I try to find interesting stories that I think Neil and uh, uh, readers for Cars will be interested in, and it's been a, a lot of fun to make these recommendations. Excellent. Well, you've got at least one story, um, and maybe more than that, if I'm not mistaken, 100 Ghosts Prayed Tonight was... In whose year's best was it in, Jonathan? I should know it was in yours. I don't know. No, no, not mine. Uh, it was in one of the year's best anthologies. Probably I think it was in uh, Rich Horton's. Yeah. Yes. Okay, Rich yeah. Horton's. It's very rare that uh, a translated story makes it a year's best, uh, let alone ballads. So that's that's something pretty impressive right by itself, I think. I um, was very much honored by that. Yeah, I know. I know Sajal was really pleased, too. So that was great. And I think, actually, we've had several other stories being picked for um, Year's Best as well. I know that um, my translation of um, Call Girl by uh, Tang Fei yeah. also yeah. was picked for Year's Best. And I know uh, Stan Chan's um, uh, The Year of the Rat was picked for the Year's Best Weird Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, it's it's been good. I'm I'm really pleased with how... Um, these translated stories are being received by readers and critics. And I think you're, well, you've been nominated at least once, maybe more than once, for the unfortunately short-lived Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Awards, which... I know, that was such a, such a great effort um, to, 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 to recognize translations, yeah. 
it's but that 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 shows part of the problem. I mean, one of the problems we had, and I've been on the board of that, technically the president, I guess, is simply that's the hardest thing in the world to figure out to how to judge translations from multiple languages. Um, you can't find anybody who knows all that. No. Right. <laughs> anyway, well. I'd like to thank you, Ken, for joining us. Uh, it's been a, a great pleasure talking to you and finding well, out more about And uh, look forward to talking to you a little bit closer to the publication of The Grace of Kings, which, if I recall, is coming out what, in April from Saga Press. Yep. Uh, and we might even get you and Joe on to talk about it, which could be fun. That would be a lot of fun. And yeah, he's, he's, he's one of our loyal followers, I like to think. Joe, are you there? He is. He is a loyal follower. I know he is. <laughs> and uh, I would also like to say, obviously, that the three the three body, body problem by Lucy Sin is out in November from Tor. And Gary, you recommend it? I'm recommending it. You can read. Oh, here's a plug for myself. You can read my review in the December <laughs> of Locus, only because I got to it late. What? But well, it's so, so after right. you've read the three body problem, and you can check in and see what you thought about it. Yeah, exactly. Read it and then go and see if I'm right. <laughs> well, until then, thank you again, Ken. Thank and, you very much, Jonathan and Gary. And pleasure. Gary, I, I will talk to you again next week. And we will. When we will remain, now and as always, the Good Street Podcast. <laughs>